Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible handy, I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, and we will be in chapter 1 as we begin our series on the gospel according to Jonah this evening. One of the things that I want to accomplish in this brief series is to show you that the book of Jonah reveals to you the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're like me and you've had experience with the book of Jonah, then you've probably heard people talk about Jonah in this way, that Jonah is someone who at one moment should be imitated and that another moment he should not be imitated at all. In other words, Jonah is treated as a kind of a kind of book to show you how you must live or not live. And Jonah is upheld as the moral exemplar in the story. Well, I want to avoid that like the plague as we go through the book of Jonah. Our focus in this series will not be on the person of Jonah per se, nor will it be on sailors or fish or people living in Nineveh. What I want you to see in the story of Jonah is the character who is unseen and yet most important, and that is Yahweh, God our Savior, the sovereign Lord who enters into the story with His people to reveal to them His saving grace and His power and mercy. In other words, as we read this story, I'm going to try week after week to lift the veil so that we can see Jesus Christ, our Lord, revealed here. As you just heard in the New Testament Scripture reading, the prophets themselves searched intently with great care, trying to figure out the times and the places in which the Spirit of Christ was pointing as He spoke through them. Angels long to look into these revelations. And it is only because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and been crucified and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God and poured out His Spirit on all flesh and abides in your hearts that you're able to read Jonah, not as a devout Hebrew, but you're able to read Jonah as a devout Christian with new eyes. And you're able to see the Christ who was revealed and yet hidden there all along. And that will be our angle for the next few weeks. Today, we're going to walk through Jonah chapter 1. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word, and all the church says, Amen. may be seated. So God has called Jonah, the prophet, to go and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah immediately runs the opposite way. And there is no shortage of commentaries who will tell you what was in Jonah's mind and why he did those things. No shortage of commentaries for people making excuses for Jonah. Excuses like this. Well, he had every right to flee from the presence of the Lord and avoid that mission to Nineveh. Nineveh, after all, was a great city. It was a massive city, a mega city in their day. It was a city full of violence and crime and chaos. It was a city like every other major city. It had, it, had its fair share of daily shootings and robberies and abuse. Of course Jonah wanted to avoid the mega city and go the other way. And so commentator after commentator, pastor after pastor makes excuses for Jonah This is why Jonah was justified in disobeying God and not going to Nineveh. Oh, and I failed to mention the Ninevites were the arch enemies of the Hebrew people. They were wreaking havoc along the borders of Samaria, where Jonah happened to live. His own hometown had come under siege and been threatened by the power of the Ninevites, by the Assyrians coming from Nineveh. There was growing animosity between the Jewish people and the Assyrian people. Great conflict between them. 
Jonah had every right, according to some pastors and some commentators, to avoid going into that terrible situation, which probably would have resulted in his immediate death. The rivalry between these nations was palpable, and everyone knew about it. During Jonah's time, he had preached and served under the reign of King Jeroboam, who was a king known to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And even though this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord and led his people into idolatry and rebellion against the Lord, God showed mercy on them and would not allow the nations around them to besiege them and bring them down, at least not yet. It was under the preaching of Jonah the prophet that King Jeroboam fortified the borders of Samaria. Border security was Border security was his prime responsibility, his primary concern. And Jonah the prophet comes across at times, much like many evangelical pastors in our day who want to make America great again. Got to secure the border. Got to do everything we can to tighten ourselves, to circle the wagons, to make sure we're safe and sound. We don't care about the rest of the world. Jonah fit into that scenario. But he was also living and preaching in a time where the king was a wicked man. And he had seen his fair share of wickedness and evil. And he had preached in a hard place, in a hard time. And when God comes to him and says, now I want you to go to a harder place at a harder time. It makes sense, at least in my mind, that Jonah might say, no, no, no. I've had enough of this. You're not going to take me out of the frying pan and put me into the fire. I'm going to the ends of the earth the other way. To give you some idea of where Jonah was versus where Nineveh was, if you can get a map in your mind right now, draw up a map in your mind. Think of Jonah as living in what we know as Israel today. And he is sent to Nineveh, which is not too far from Baghdad in Iraq. It was actually in Mosul. You've heard about that in the news with this ongoing war that seems to never end in the Middle East. In other words, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Jonah is going to be sent from Israel to Iraq It would be like sending a U.S. citizen to go into the region where ISIS is reigning supreme. You all know from Facebook feeds and social media and occasionally on the news what happens to professing Christians who dwell in places where ISIS has taken control. They don't live very long, and if they live long, they do not live happily at all. And maybe framing it that way helps you understand part of what was in Jonah's mind. He doesn't want to go from one wicked nation into a more wicked nation. More wicked in his mind, that is. He doesn't want to go from a bad situation to a worse situation. And yet this is the very thing God has called him to do. He has spent part of his ministry preaching the word of the Lord that Samaria should secure her borders. And now that she's done that, God wants to send him beyond those borders where it's unsecure. And so Jonah flees the other way at a very time when his people are experiencing relative peace and prosperity. 
The Assyrians and the Ninevites are experiencing economic uncertainty. Famine has come upon the land. There is political conflict and turmoil. They are in a weakened state. And it's in that moment that God sends his prophet to Nineveh to cry out against that great city. I want you to notice as we make our way through the book of Jonah that something that will come to the surface again and again is that Jonah was about as patriotic and nationalistic as they come. If they'd had a flag in that day, he might have wrapped himself in it in defiance against the Lord's call to go outside the borders of Samaria to this foreign nation. He was a devout Jewish prophet. He believed that God and God's word and God's covenant were for God's people alone. It was not for the nations at all. It was not for Israel. It was for Israel even when Israel was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you can see part of Jonah's dilemma here that given the political circumstances, given the spiritual conditions of Samaria, given the ethnocentric bias of of Jonah, a fancy way of saying his racism, you can understand why Jonah wants to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. And so he flees from the presence of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's more explicit. It says that he ran from the face of God. He's trying to get away from the face of God. God's been looking at him long enough, paying enough attention to him. He wants to get out from under the gaze of God. French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, described uh, the human being living under the gaze of God as a kind of hell. That's why he hated God. That's why he claimed to be an atheist. He didn't want to live under God's gaze and scrutiny. Well, that's what Jonah's doing. He wants to flee the face of God and get away. Get away from it all. I can't take it anymore. Some of you know that we pastors often complain about Mondays as bread truck Mondays. This is, this is a bread truck life right here. He's out. He's done. He's moving away. He wants to go do something else. And so he goes to Joppa and he gets on a boat. Several years ago, I went to Mississippi. I just returned from uh, living in Mexico and a friend of mine invited me to join him on a conference or to a conference in Jackson, Mississippi. His dad and a friend of his dad's wanted to pay our way. And so we met up in Louisiana. We drove to Jackson, Mississippi. And it was the first time in my life that I ever heard anyone in person preach on the doctrines of grace. And it just so happens that one of the speakers there later became a professor of mine at the seminary. And he also happened to be a man whose book on the Holy Spirit I had read multiple times. And I couldn't believe I'm going to hear this man preach in person, in real life, in real time. And he preached on Jonah. And I'll never forget Sinclair Ferguson, Scotsman, preaching on this part of Jonah and emphasizing how in the Hebrew the word down appears so many times. I don't know why they don't retain that in English, but I wish you could have heard him talk about how Jonah went down to Joppa. And he went down to buy the fare and down into the boat and down into the inner part of the boat. 
emphasizing the point that as you look at Jonah running from the presence of God, you see something happening in his life that he's probably not aware of, but you can see it as an outsider looking in. And you can see that Jonah, in running from the face of God, has put himself on a downward spiral. A downward spiral. Some of you have been there in your life. You've tried to hide from God in some way. You try to get out from His view. You try to cover your sin. You display some kind of rebellion. And as you run from the Lord, you are sinking down, spiraling down in a flat spin, going down. We've all been there. We've all felt what that feels like. But sometimes we're in the midst of it and we don't realize just how quickly we're going down. Jonah here literally is circling the drain. And you'll see that next week because he goes down the drain. But right now he's circling the drain as he makes his way to the end of the earth. He gets on a boat and he's making his way across the sea. Of course, he's not a sailor. The Hebrew people were not known to, uh, to be seamen. Solomon tried to form a navy, but really the Philistines and others were the ones who mastered the sea. They knew about the dangers of the sea. And so when this ship is headed out across the Mediterranean Sea to the end, probably somewhere near Spain, what in Jonah's mind must have been like a paradise resort compared to Nineveh. He's trying to get about 3,000 miles away from Nineveh. He wants to put a lot of distance between them. A great wind comes down. It's not just any storm. The scripture is clear that God hurled the wind. God is the one who throws the wind down upon the sea to stop the prophet in his tracks and get his attention. The sailors can't do anything. They can't go against this. We hear this language from time to time about people resisting the Holy Spirit. Think of this as an occasion where the Holy Spirit is resisting people. And this is a battle that these men cannot win. It's a battle that Jonah cannot win. God has caused this violent storm to come upon the sea and to threaten to destroy the ship. even at the cost of drowning the crew along with Jonah. And one of my favorite movies of all time, Master and Commander on the Far Side of the World. I love that movie. If you want to understand me a little bit better, you might watch that movie a couple times. I've been that influenced by it. If any of you have seen the movie, you know that there is a moment, there's a, a thread running through the story in which a phantom ship keeps appearing. And every time it appears, there's a certain man who is on watch. And he just happens to be the one on watch every time this ship appears in random places at random times. And through the course of the story, the men on the ship become mentally and emotionally strained. And they began to look at this midshipman named Hollam as a Jonah. As a man who is bringing a curse upon their ship. They blame him because the phantom ship keeps coming and threatening to wreck them. They blame him because the wind stops blowing and leaves them stuck in the doldrums. 
They blame Him because there's not enough food and not enough water and they're living in the state of misery. Their mission is failing because Jonah, as they call him, is on ship. They grow restless and disrespectful of this man and you find out that even the captain believes the myth of Jonah. The doctor on the ship thinks it's all superstition. But then suddenly we learn that Hallam, midshipman Hallam, also believes this. And he believes it so strongly that under the pressure and the gaze of this crew and the suffering, he decides to take his own life, lifting a cannonball and jumping into the sea. And miraculously, the next morning, when everyone discovers that he has died, the wind begins to blow. And all of their superstition is confirmed. Good weather returns. There's plenty of rain and water. And they continue on their mission. That's rooted and grounded in the story of Jonah in the Scripture. You know where that comes from? It comes from the idea that in this story, just like in the story in the movie, just like in the story of your life, we're always looking for scapegoats. We're always looking for someone else to blame for our problems, our situation. You see what happens in this story is the men begin to look around and say, why is this happening to us? And you notice that in asking the question, they're looking past themselves to each other and then beyond each other to the only other person on the boat, which is Jonah down in the inside of the boat. Calvin makes an interesting point about all of this in his commentary when he says that the sailors each look past their own sins. They considered themselves relatively blameless. There's no way that my sin could be responsible for this mess. There's no way that my sin could have caused this or be the reason for this mess. It has to be someone else's sin whose sin is greater than my own. So let's find the scapegoat and that's what they're doing. It was common among those people, uh, pagan sailors, to, to use livers. And I don't know how they did it, of course. I'm not a pagan. But they would use livers to try to divine who was, who was doing what. And sometimes you see in movies, they'll look at tea leaves or other things. Or people will draw straws or cast lots. One reason people like to do that is because there is a sense of chance and circumstance involved. And it makes us feel less responsible for the outcome of the decision of the lots. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs in the Old Testament tells us that uh, there's no such thing as luck or chance, not even when it comes to casting lots. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so even in this event, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God is at work. Jonah is discovered to be, in fact, the Jonah, the one who has brought about this trouble. Notice his response in the story. Jonah does two things here. He has two forms of confession. He leads with a confession of faith, and then he follows it up with a confession of sin. Again, there's a lot of debate and discussion about this, but I think Calvin might be right when he says that one reason Jonah leads with this confession of faith is because he wants to soften the blow for the confession of sin. 
In other words, by confessing the faith and giving his bona fides and laying out his credentials, then when he finally gets to, oh, by the way, this is my fault, he thinks they're going to have more mercy on him. And so he says, as he answers their question, here's his confession of faith. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Sounds very much like the Apostles' Creed that we recite every week. Despite running from the face of God, he is still acknowledging Yahweh as creator God. This is a man in a miserable state. This is a double-minded man. I can relate to him because I know that sometimes in the midst of my own sin, I know the truth. I know who God is. I know who I am in relation to God. But there's a part of me that just doesn't care. And that's where Jonah is. He knows who God is, who He is in relation to God, but in a way He doesn't care. God made the sea and the dry land. He made these realms. I left the dry land. I'm on the sea. I know God made it. I know He hurled the wind upon it. I know that He is sovereign over all of these things. And yet, irrationally, absurdly, He tries to flee the face of God. This confession of faith, by the way, caused the sailors to fear. If you don't think that reciting the Lord's Creed every week, or the Apostles' Creed every week, is powerful, you think it's just rote and maybe doesn't carry much weight, uh, get among believers. Get among unbelievers and start to declare that you believe these things and see what they think about it. Stand in your culture and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And the vast majority of people who have embraced Darwinian evolution will think you're a nut job. These creeds and confessions have power to shape your life, to shape your mind and heart. That's what's happening with Jonah. And then he moves into his confession of sin. It's my fault. This whole thing is coming down. It's my fault. I made this mess. I'm, I'm trying to get away from God. I've disobeyed. I've sinned. I've, it's my fault. So he owns that. But you see how his sin has put other people in jeopardy. That's what's happening here. They want to know what to do, and he gives them the advice. The advice that he gives, I don't know if you want to follow it, but he says, just get rid of me and your problems will all go away. Right? Pick me up, cast me into the sea. They do so. They pray that God will not hold it against them. And Jonah hits the water. The wind stops blowing. The waves calm down. The wind and the waves obey His will. Peace be still. Peace be still. And two things are happening there. One man gives his life on behalf of others. One man perishes and those for whom he perishes live. They're converted. They're changed. They begin to worship God. They make vows to Him. They're no longer calling out to their former gods. Now they're calling out to the God of Jonah. If He has enough power to do what He did to us because of this man Jonah, He is rightly to be feared and praised. Well, if we ended the story there, that would be a very good Jewish... Well, I don't want to boast. That would be a decent Jewish telling, retelling of the story. Maybe not very good. I apologize. 
I don't want to overstate. (laughs) But there's more to the story than that, isn't there? We're not just interested in hearing a Jewish fable told over and over again. We're not interested in hearing a myth or a legend about a prophet on a sea. We're not, we're not having this debate over whether it's history and myth and all of that stuff. We, there's more to this story. This story tells us something about Jesus. But what does it tell us about Jesus? So let's go back through the story a bit. And I want to show you because... If you're like me, you need to hear some good news tonight. It's in all likelihood, you relate to Jonah. I don't have to connect the dots. You've, you already feel like Jonah. You're already caught in a storm, maybe a storm by your, caused by your own sin. Others are affected by it. And you don't need to revisit that again and again. You don't need me pouring salt into your wounds or lemon juice into your cuts. You need balm, right? You need ointment. You need to be healed. And so what does this story tell you about Jesus? Did you hear it? Did you see it? Jesus himself says that the story of Jonah is a sign of the gospel. How is it a sign of the gospel? Well, it's a sign of the gospel in this sense, that Jonah is sent on mission to preach to the Gentiles, to a great city, to a people who are hostile to God, enemies of God and His people in thought, word, and deed. Likewise, Jesus Christ is sent into the world to preach good news to people. Just like that. Just like us. Who are enemies of God in our hearts and minds, and yet God came in His Son Jesus while we were enemies To proclaim good news. Jonah descends from on high and he goes down. He goes down, down, down below. Down to the depths. Down to the heart of the matter. Just as Jesus himself did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage. He set it aside and he came down. And he kept coming down, not just down in the form of man, but down lower in the form of a servant and down lower than that in the form of a sacrifice that is then lifted up. What is it that Jonah said as they were in the midst of the storm raging all around them? Lift me up and cast me down. And as Jonah was lifted up by the hands of wicked men and cast into the deep sea, so Jesus was handed over and lifted up on the cross and killed by the hands of wicked men and buried in the heart of the earth. As Jonah was offered up as the atoning sacrifice for the sailors, so Jesus is offered up as the atoning sacrifice Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the world. And as Jonah's death satisfied God and calmed the storm of God's wrath brewing on that sea, so Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied God and turned God's wrath away from you and away from me. All of these things are consistent with what Christ and the apostles said in the New Testament. Jesus proclaimed to a crowd of seekers on one occasion, 
When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. John says in his letter, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jonah was a real man. He lived in real space-time history. He was really in a boat on a sea in the midst of a storm. But he was a shadow, a type, a hint of Jesus Christ. French philosopher and theologian Jacques Ellul says, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat and the sacrifice he makes saves the sailors. The story points to an infinitely vaster reality that what Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces, is done by Jesus Christ. He it is who accepts total condemnation. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves the sailors. It is solely because Jesus has accepted the malediction that Jonah's acceptance has something to say both to the sailors and to us. Now earlier I mentioned how... Pastors and commentators and all kinds of people try to make excuses for Jonah. This is why Jonah fled the face of the Lord, why he avoided Nineveh, why he wanted out of Samaria, why he was trying to retire to a beach in Spain. And all of the excuses have something to do with world conditions outside of Jonah. And there's no end of excuses that we could point to. We do this with our own lives. I did X, Y, and Z because the world around me was formed in, against me in this way. And we try to justify ourselves. But now I want to come full circle and say that Jonah fled from the face of the Lord not because of the conditions of the world outside of him, but because of the condition of his heart inside of him. And that's why we identify with him. That's why we relate to him so well. We don't need a pastor to tell us how much we're like Jonah. We know we're like Jonah. Because we spend hours each week, days each week, trying to get out of the face of the Lord. Trying to avoid His gaze. Trying to escape the realities of His demands on our lives. So we very much identify with Him. We also identify with the sailors trying to do the right things, often confused theologically about who God is and what He's doing, misunderstanding His Word, trying to act responsibly, yet at the same time acting irresponsibly, not quite sure what we must do in any given moment, feeling that God is somehow against us, not recognizing that perhaps God is in fact for us. Why does His Spirit prevent us from doing things that we want to do? Perhaps it's for our own good. 
It's His love that keeps us out of sin, death, and destruction. But where I'm going with all this is is to say that whether you identify with Jonah the prophet who fled from the face of the Lord, or whether you identify with the sailors who are confused about who God is and what God is doing in the world, the solution, the answer to your dilemma, to your condition, to your weaknesses, your failings, is still the same. You must be consumed. You must be engulfed. You must be swallowed up by Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ alone that you find your hope, your rest, your salvation. And we'll see that more next week. I do want to end on a very happy note here. Here's the happy note. Jonah is sinking in the sea. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that is the gospel. That is good news for Jonah. Although it looks like bad news. But as Modest Mouse likes to say, this is good news for people who love bad news.